You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to the next episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. This week, I have an incredibly intelligent, wise recovery warrior named Mia Findlay on the show. Mia is recovered from her eating disorder herself. She is now an eating disorder recovery coach like myself, and she is an amazing YouTuber and podcaster. And if you haven't seen her online yet, I definitely recommend that you listen to her stuff and watch her stuff because she is that good. Before I dive into the episode, I did want to let you know that I have a trigger warning in place for this episode. We do talk about suicide, so if that is something that you do not feel comfortable listening to or a topic that makes you feel triggered in any way, I advise you to either skip that part of the episode or just not listen to this episode in general. One more thing, I did want to let you know that Mia and I were both trained by the same coaching program, and that coaching program is called the Carolyn Costin Institute, and we refer to a woman named Carolyn throughout this episode. So if you're listening in and saying, who the heck is this Carolyn lady, we are referring to the woman who taught us how to be coaches. And we both loved that program and love the work Carolyn does. So I will be linking to that information in the show notes if you want to learn any more about that. So without further ado, here is my interview with Mia Finlay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. I am beyond thrilled and excited to introduce my next guest for the show. She is a eating disorder recovery coach. She is a recovered survivor of an eating disorder. She's a YouTuber and she's just an amazing person all around. It is Mia Findlay. Welcome Mia to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm so happy to be with you here on your brand new podcast. This is so exciting. I know. It's so exciting. I'm so super excited to have you on the show, really. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) Yay. So I'm sure that there are so many people listening who have heard your story before. I'm sure they're fans already, but I wanted, for those who have never heard of you before, I wanted to kind of ask you to share a little bit about your recovery journey and what that was like for you. Sure. So It feels like forever ago now, but my recovery started seven years ago this August, which is coming around very quickly because it's almost July, which is frightening. Um, So it was seven years ago, I entered treatment for my eating disorder. And before I went off to my first appointment, I was not very punctual back then and running a bit late and looking for my keys. And I checked (laughs) under my iPad and looked at the iPad and thought, well, maybe I should document this like by writing something out or doing a quick video just to talk about what I'm feeling and where I am right now today because I'll have this to look back on. Hopefully things get better and improve. So I made a quick video. That felt really good. Came back from my psychology session, made another video talking about what I've learned. Just kept doing that on repeat. And then purely from a... Uh, storage capacity standpoint there was no storage left on my ipad so i started storing them on youtube just uploading them so i could rewatch them and people started to find them which was crazy to me because i didn't really know what channels were or that you could have this sort of platform on youtube and the community just started growing and growing and it helped my recovery enormously because i thought i was the only person who could possibly be experiencing something so horrible because nobody talked about it. There was no awareness that I was really plugged into. 
and it has now grown into this incredible community uh, of more than I think 50,000 on YouTube. But yeah, so I, I recovered a few years ago, then started working more in advocacy through my social media and found out about coaching, found out about Carolyn Coston and was finally able to see that there was a path to me working in this professionally. I didn't want to be a psychologist or a dietitian. I wanted to come from more of a peer level, got certified, started my business two and a half years ago. And yeah, just as sort of this big full circle story that I never could have anticipated or predicted. It's just the weirdest, happy accident of my life. (laughs) I love that. I think it is definitely a happy accident. I can't believe also, because you think about it, seven years ago, YouTube wasn't that big. I mean, it was, it was getting there, but it was not what it is today. Mm-hmm. And so how did you feel when you uploaded these reflections, you know, about your therapy sessions, and then you realized people were f- starting to actually listen? I feel like I would have been terrified. I felt quite exposed at times but the recovery community was um was much smaller than it is now it was a microcosm compared to what it is now particularly because as you noted youtube was much smaller instagram was in its infancy there wasn't really the term influencer at that point and so you didn't have these enormous uh, profiles on instagram talking about recovery or body image etc or people documenting their own recovery so I think I'd be much more daunted by that prospect now because there is a lot of scrutiny and comparison within the recovery community. I I think I'd be a bit too gun shy to do it now, but I loved it. It was like a light came into my life and I had other people contacting me saying they were a bit further along than I was, or they'd gone through what I was in that moment going through. And it was this reassurance that I could get through it because without a framework for recovery, it can feel really open-ended. Like what is, what am I meant to be doing? What is happening? Where am I going to end up? So it kind of gave me these milestones to work towards because I could see that in other people's journeys, other people's recoveries, what was sort of coming next and all of this wonderful encouragement. It was a very, it felt like a safe space and it was tiny. There was really nobody watching for (laughs) probably the first three years I think there were maybe a couple of thousand people at the most um so it felt very very safe at the time wow were other people filming their recovery journeys too is that why you felt like you've you discovered a framework not really it was more over on tumblr which can be a bit of a a dangerous spot for people with eating disorders. There is sort of a big pro eating disorder community, which I never stumbled across. I had to be told about it. I was really just part of the recovery community, which my sister had told me about. She said, you know, if you are looking for community, that's where a lot of people do talk about their eating disorders. I mean, I was the nana of that community. They were all much younger than I was. Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> but that's where, you know, people were initially reaching out and saying, oh, I found your videos and, you know, now I found your Tumblr and I love what you're doing. And I'm about, you know, I'm a year into recovery and this is what I've experienced. And I was like, oh, that gives me so much comfort to know, you know, there's people who are further along who I can sort of look to to manage my expectations about what's coming because I didn't know anybody with an eating disorder. Also, I thought, obviously, people have eating disorders and we don't know. Uh, Or I also didn't know anybody who was going through recovery or had gone through recovery in my personal life. So it was incredibly powerful. Lived experience is incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And I feel like eating disorders can be so isolating and scary that, you know, it's so interesting how the internet has made them way less isolating and way less Mm -hmm. scary. And I feel like there's so many dark sides of the internet, obviously. But then when it comes to recovery, if you find yourself in a very pro-recovery environment, like watching your videos or, you know, just being part of watching, um, having amazing Instagram accounts that are really body positive and health at every size, informed you can really create recreate your mindset based on what you surround yourself with Mm -hmm. makes sense 
Absolutely. And I think that we have more agency than we realise. I used to have a very different perspective about, you know, the kind of accounts we should, quote unquote, get rid of or ban. And the truth is we can't take community away from people where that might be their only outlet, right? Um, But also we have to take responsibility to some degree when we have capacity to uh, in regards to what we are exposing ourselves to or what we're allowing to have access to us because that's a really integral part of recovery is becoming more aware, more discerning and realising that you have the power. We're kind of led to believe sometimes from more outdated treatment processes that we're powerless and we're possessed by this thing and we have no control whereas that's why I love Carolyn's approach the healthy self-eating disorder self-framework because it shows you do have the power you do have more control and agency than you realize and social media is a part of that if something doesn't sit right unfollow if someone makes you feel badly about yourself even if it's clearly not their intention unfollow I say to people all the time that includes my content if it doesn't mesh with you that is okay please go and find something that does because your mental health is the priority right Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes there's things which are more obviously detrimental but we've got to be a bit more aware and that's part of the skill base that we have to build up to protect ourselves and Mm -hmm. to strengthen that healthy self which can advocate for us yeah I love how you call it a skill too, because it really is. It's a way to check in with yourself on a small level and say, okay, I feel this way about this content. What can I do about it? And it might be unfollowing. It might be temporarily unfollowing or blocking, whatever it might be to just make sure you're protecting your recovery. And that's a concept I talk about with my clients all the time, because I feel like when you're in recovery, It's like your recovery house is built out of sticks at first and Mm -hmm. it can just get knocked down so easily by a gust of wind. And that gust of wind could be a triggering post by a fitness influencer or something like Mm -hmm. that. So you want to protect your house and while it's, while it's shaky, do whatever you can to just keep that foundation strengthening and strengthening. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. It's, um, it can be a huge blessing, but it can also be uh, a bit of a tricky thing to navigate because there is so much of it out there. Uh, and give yourself time to reflect and, and, like you say, take some time away. You can always refollow just because you unfollow yeah. doesn't mean this account just disappears <laughs> into the ether. You can always go back and follow, but always err on the side of caution. If something doesn't sit right and you don't even know why, that's okay. You can still unfollow. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about kind of your recovery or your eating disorder. So pre-recovery, mm-hmm. it sounds like YouTube and advocacy and putting yourself out there, that vulnerability really helped you move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as your eating disorder itself goes, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what sure. you're, if you're comfortable Absolutely. It's all over the internet. It's no secret. (laughs) Right. Who am I asking? (laughs) I went on, it's like, um, I was out the other night and someone said, you know, if there's anything that's off limits, I was like, it's all on the internet. Nothing is off limits. Um, It's already out there. I don't even have to tell you. I'll just send you the videos. Um, (laughs) but my eating disorder, I really think it more if we're like saying officially when it really developed was around the age of 19. But having said that, I always had a terrible relationship with food and with my body. I was really heavily bullied as a child because I was, well, six foot tall by the age of 12. And I was a larger kid and a larger teenager. I was in a larger body. Not that I speak to that experience now because I'm in a conventionally more acceptable body, but I have been in a larger body and was yeah treated terribly in primary school called awful names I was actually um fat shamed on a beach right near where I'm sitting right now Mollymook Beach on the south coast by a bunch of teenage boys called me a pig and winked at me and it was at 15 just crushing and learned all these lessons at that age which was you know if you're bigger you're not acceptable and you deserve you know to be humiliated and, and vilified and then just by virtue of, you know, getting older, I, my body type went, you know, to a smaller size. And these 
funnily enough, these same boys I ran into and suddenly I was acceptable. Wow. Suddenly yeah. they liked me and they didn't remember me from the year before. So the message I internalised there was you are valuable when you're smaller. You are more desirable, you're more likeable. And at 16, very underdeveloped brain, that message goes in and it goes unchallenged and sort of you build the foundation of who you are on this belief. So that became very, very important to me, the idea that I needed to remain smaller. I had an obligation to remain smaller. So seeds of uh, sort of uh, diet culture there amongst my childhood and, and my teenage years. And then when I was 19, just a series of events happened. It was my first year of uni, which is obviously quite disruptive. I was at a university about two and a half hours from home and uh, family events that were pretty traumatising all happened in, a, in about a month. And suddenly I was using food to cope. So my eating disorder experience really reflectively probably started with binge eating disorder, which quickly developed into bulimia, mm -hmm. which then developed into anorexia binge purge subtype. So that means that you essentially are within the anorexia diagnosis, but still engaging in binging episodes and purging to compensate. And that lasted for about six years. Uh, it was not, it didn't appear to be as, you know, horrible as it was on the inside. I was, you know, working and I moved to London for a year and was as social as I could be for a large portion of that time until about the last 12 months when everything just kind of became very chronic and I just started to become totally incapable of maintaining this exterior appearance that everything was fine and great and ended up very, very physically unwell with uh, very concerning physical symptoms, including a skin condition that's irreversible, rosacea, because of the state of sort of my health and, and my gut at the time. And I was without a job. I totally isolated myself from my friends, totally isolated myself from my family and just got out of an awful relationship. And I had really hit rock bottom. And for anyone who's listening who might be triggered by talk of suicide, that's, it was sort of where that ended up was I became quite suicidal and had been dealing with suicide ideation on and off for the two years prior. And that all kind of culminated in attempting to take my life. And for whatever reason, I reached out before, you know, completing that process, I suppose, to put it clinically, and said, I need help. I'd never said, I need help. I never said, I have an eating disorder. I'm depressed. But I suddenly got very, very angry at the eating disorder, at myself, at what had happened to my life. I kind of had this moment of, hang on, what happened between 19 and 25? How did I get here? What, how did my life get sort of taken away from me? And I became angry that this had happened to me for reasons that were totally out of my control and reached out, didn't ask for help, demanded help. Which <laughs> <laughs> is much more in line with my character yes. than how I was in my eating disorder. And sort of uh, said, you know, I, I want help and you're going to help me and you're going to essentially, uh, you know, get me in front of a doctor, etc. I was in front of a doctor within 24 hours. I was in front of my psychologist 24 hours after that. That was the day that I made that first video. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And my recovery was as challenging as a recovery can be, but it was also periods of just euphoria and gratitude, which I still experience to this day, just sitting, whether it's with friends or at a wedding or, you know, traveling and, or just sitting with someone who means the world to you and just having this inter internal moment of, you know, what if I wasn't here for this? And if I was here for this, what if I was still in my eating disorder mindset and couldn't be fully present and couldn't really appreciate how fortunate I am. So I became determined to sort of take more from the eating disorder than it took from me. And that's fueled a lot of my advocacy and my work is that it's sort of like um, helping other people to avoid what I was lucky enough to avoid is sort of like getting back at the eating disorder every time. <laughs> <laughs> every time I recruit someone into recovery, it's like, yes, yeah, a win for me. And <laughs> 
kind of getting back at the eating disorder. That's so true. I love having that empowered feeling of just shoving it to the eating disorder, like take that. Mm -hmm. I sometimes think of it like an ex-boyfriend where (laughs) you're living your best life and you're like, if only he could see just how much better life is without him, right? He'd be so annoyed if he could see like what I'm eating and who I'm with (laughs) and what I'm wearing and that I'm just, you know, absolutely present in my life when he just made that so impossible for me. I find it very, um, very satisfying to think about it in that context. I love that context. I haven't heard that before, but it's definitely (laughs) what I'm going to start thinking about for sure. (laughs) Thank you so much for being so open about your journey. I feel like it's so powerful. What a powerful story that you had that rock bottom moment and you kind of mobilized your anger in Mm -hmm. a direction towards getting help. I actually think it's also... Yeah, I think it's also really important because so much of what I'd say and why I spoke about it really openly from the beginning that, you know, um, that I had, I was suicidal and I did make an attempt to take my life because it's actually one of the most common ways that we lose people to eating disorders, but we never hear about it. It's always this assumption that it's got to be because there was some kind of physical event that happened, which is also possible to be really clear there. You are really in danger of multiple um, uh, physical sort of uh, aspects of what the eating disorder can do that can end your life. But a huge reason why we lose people is because they just reach this hopelessness. And that's what happened to me. But I hadn't heard of that. It was always, you know, people being in hospital or experiencing cardiac arrest, etc., some of those more stereotypical Mm -hmm, depictions mm -hmm. that we're so used to within the eating disorder space. So I think it is important to talk about the fact that eating disorders are mental illnesses with physical symptoms. And because it is a mental illness, one of the first things that's putting you in danger is the state of your brain and the Mm -hmm. state of your mental space. Um, So yeah, I, if, if someone feels like they're not sick enough, that's usually playing into it that they feel like they're not physically sick enough, but you don't, you don't have to get anywhere close to what you think sick enough is to be in very, very serious danger. That's so true. Cause when you hear the word sick enough, everyone's thinking of those physical symptoms. They're not thinking yeah. about those mental symptoms that are terrifying and mm-hmm. equal equivalent. I mean, in, in behavioral health, you want to treat mental health issues the same as you treat physical health issues. Um, you, you really want to give um, space for that mental health and give it validate the fact that this is a real problem and I am mm-hmm. sick enough. I'm contemplating killing myself. I'm contemplating self-harm, whatever it might be. And the thing is, those with eating disorders actually have a higher tolerance for pain, which makes suicide more easy to process and contemplate, which is mm-hmm. a really interesting fact I learned recently was um, that tolerance for pain makes it, makes it so that decision isn't as hard, which is mm-hmm. something I think we need to talk about in the community because in reality, suicide is one of the leading reasons for death among people with eating disorders. Yeah. And it's, it is just something that we don't hear about because it is such a taboo subject. And obviously, you know, you've got to put trigger warnings over all those sorts of discussions, which is understandable because it can be a triggering topic, but it's also kind of putting a wall between uh, the people who probably need to hear those conversations and the conversation itself, because, we just too often put the emphasis on the physical aspects of this illness where that's, if we think about something like pneumonia, a cough is a symptom. The real problem is what's going on in the lungs. So that's the equivalent of the brain is unwell. That's like the lungs in that metaphor. And the cough is the physical symptom like, you know, cardiac arrest or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so the original issue is is the brain. That's what needs attention. So if your brain is not working properly or it's a miserable place to be, that alone is sick enough mm-hmm. because that's the most important symptom is your internal experience of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I'll have people reach out to me 
looking for help with coaching and they'll say, you know, I reached recovery a few years ago and I'll say, well, what did that look like for you? And they said, well, I restored my weight. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, well, what about the food obsession and the preoccupation and the mental torment? And they're like, well, that hasn't really gone away. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you didn't really reach full recovery because that mental component is part of the recovery process. It is possible to stop obsessing over food and your weight and all of that. And your sense of self as well. I think that people have been let down for a long time because I see a huge pushback against the notion of full recovery. Mm. which on one hand, as a professional, I sympathize with and empathize with. I understand that when you've been told for many, many years that remission is, you know, sort of the best you're going to get or that you'll always be battling these thoughts, you'll always be battling that voice in your head. I feel terribly for those people. But it's also frustrating as a survivor and a recovered person to sort of see this suspicion out there that, well, you know, I don't believe in full recovery. Okay, well, that would imply that those of us who put our hands up and say, I've fully recovered must in some way be disingenuous, right? That we're not being totally honest. So that's an uncomfortable uh, conversation that probably needs to be had in greater depth. But I also understand it that when you've been told for so long that this is the best that you're going to aim for, to hope for more, might feel too daunting people come to me as they would to you and say yeah that all sounds great but I don't think that's possible for me mm-hmm. and then you see them progressing and becoming more certain in oh well I've got this far I can probably get a bit further and a bit further and a bit further and I had a conversation with a client who's now sort of transitioned out of my coaching because she is essentially a stone's throw from being fully recovered and we've taken a pause from session so she can go and kind of spread her wings and we're both in tears. And I had my notes in front of me and I said, it was only a matter of months ago that you were saying to me, I just don't think full recovery is possible for me. And here we are. So unless you know it's on the map, why would you keep walking towards it, right? If you, someone's told you, this is as far as you can get on this uh, process and nobody's told you that there's, this amazing, beautiful location that's another 20 or 30 or 40 kilometres, sorry, Americans, miles. Um, (laughs) And you would, if you knew it was there, you'd know it would be more work, but you'd probably keep walking, right? You'd probably keep going. Mm -hmm. But if somebody's only ever told you this is as far as you're going to get, you're not going to stumble off into the wilderness not knowing, you know, what's on the other side. Um, So I think that there's still a lot of work to do around letting people know what is possible um, and having some uncomfortable uncomfortable conversations about some of that skepticism about full mm-hmm. recovery. Mm-hmm. I, I really do think that there are people who might not believe full recovery is possible, but what I, if you're one of those people, so if you're listening and you fall into that camp, I just ask you to be open to the idea. Just be open totally. that recovery is fully possible. We're not asking you to believe it. We're not asking to you to even live it. If you just want to, you know, hang on to your eating disorder a little bit, oh, that's fine. But full recovery is possible as long as you're open to it. So, exactly. Unless it's unless it's <laughs> it's something that you can consider, then it will never happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just consider right? it. <laughs> Try it yeah. out for a week. <laughs> yeah. Just stay curious. Just stay curious. It's sort of you would have the same conversations with your clients where they will push back against anything. And I'm like, oh, I can't make you do anything. (laughs) (laughs) I can't force you to do this challenge. I can't force you to fully recover. It's totally up to you. Like if you want the tools and the framework to get there, let's talk about it. But I can't make you do anything. Yeah. Whereas old elements of treatment have been, you know, practitioners versus patient where it's like you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And then they come to a coach and the coach is like, oh, no, I'm not going to make you do anything. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to come to session and not do anything, that's up to you. But if you want to do something, let's let's chat. Let's talk about what's possible. I always like to call it gentle nudges. Like, yeah, I like to nudge my clients in the right direction, just gently with small challenges, whatever they're willing to take on, as long as they do it. Um, Or at least try. Even if you try and you cannot do it, I still consider that a win. Oh, totally. Because also if it didn't work, I come from the approach of, I say to people, there's no good or bad. There's no right or wrong. It's just, is it effective? Does it work? It's not whether or not you're 
amazing at recovery. It's, is your recovery effective? So if it didn't work, something went wrong, let's look at what worked, what didn't, take the balance of what's helpful and apply that to next week. If you're trying to be perfect at this, you're going to miss every opportunity to actually be, be effective at your own recovery. That's so true. Every failure quote, you know, it's not mm-hmm. really a failure. It's mm-hmm. more of just a way to evaluate how you can do it differently. What can I put in place this time? What mental state can I be in that's a little bit stronger so that the next time I attempt to complete this challenge, I have so much more behind me. And I, you know, you just have to keep trying. And keep it's a very, creating. very humbling process for us perfectionists. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> so true. Yeah, we're trying, trying to be perfect actually works against you. Very true. One thing I always love to ask uh, really to survivors, eating disorders, when you were going through your recovery process, what were some turning points for you that really were those aha moments that got you through or to another level, if that makes sense? I love that question. I've never been asked that before. Um, <laughs> so initially it was because I was really directing my own recovery. Like I said, there wasn't, I wasn't aware of people like Carolyn at this point. I wasn't aware of the eight keys. A lot of the stuff that I did was, based on instinct, which was clearly a great healthy self-instinct. So I think probably one of the earliest turning points was this idea that what I had done for all those years, trying to shrink myself, trying to be this person who I thought would lead to my happiness and confidence and success, et cetera, that it had never worked, that I'd given this thing so many chances and that's what I say to clients when they want to hold on to this stuff. And I'm like, but has it worked? Do you have evidence and examples to give me to say when they say, but it made me confident. I'm like, great. Can you give me an example? (laughs) (laughs) Not really. Because when we talk about confidence, confidence is not Mm -hmm. the absence of feeling, you know, terrible and feeling numb. It's, you know, walking into a room and being like, this is who I am. This is what I look like. This is what I wear. This is, you know, who I choose to be. And you can take it or you can leave it. I don't think anyone with an eating disorder could say that they walk into a room and feel like that. Um, <laughs> so it was just the, the light bulb moment that this had not worked, that it never worked, that what I was really trying to get to, which was a sense of self-acceptance of my biggest goal was to be calm. I just wanted to be calm. My head had been so chaotic for so long that when my psychologist asked me, what's your goal? And I said, I just want to be calm. I just want my head to be quiet. That's it. And she was like, that's it. I was like, that is it. I don't care what else we do, but can we just do that? Um, The next big turning point for me, which was probably the most critical one for a variety of reasons, was about three years into recovery. And I made a video talking about this at the time, which I'm really glad I did, was I almost uh, sort of started to slip backwards. Mm. All these thoughts started coming into my head again. And it was just shy of my three-year recovery anniversary. And I remember having a conversation with my mum where she was saying, you know, this is so exciting and you should be so proud. I said, I really don't care. I'm really just not that excited as I was for my one and two-year anniversary. And she said, why is that? And I said, because I'm going to have this thing for the rest of my life. This was pre knowing full recovery was possible. And I said, and I'm exhausted. I'm burnt out. I'm exhausted. I'm working just as hard as I did on day one. And I'm just totally out of energy. I was going just as hard at recovery for three years, every day for three years. And I really didn't need to be. If I had known that I could take my foot off the pedal because I could relax into all this great neural rewiring that had happened, if I'd known that full recovery was possible, I would have probably confidently said by then that I was fully recovered, but no one had told me. And that's when I discovered Carolyn and went, okay, well, what if I, what if I relax into this? What if I am not constantly opening the fridge and going, this is what I feel like eating, but why do I feel like eating that? Mm -hmm. And do I need to challenge this? And I'm going to go for a walk. Am I going too quickly? Am I pushing my, like I was on myself 24 seven because that is what I was told I needed to do forever. Mm -hmm. So ironically being so in my head about 
recovering was what was leading to me slipping backwards. Whereas if I'd known that I could gradually relax and be confident in my progress, I would have been in a much better position. Uh, And that was a huge turning point. Huge. I was confident in my progress. I obviously had to go back and do a bit of work to be sure that, you know, that bit bit of slipping backwards thoughts wise, not, there was no behaviors. It was just my thinking was sort of slipping backwards. Um, was a huge turning point for my recovery personally, but it obviously introduced me to Carolyn and her, then her course. And yeah, it was just, I think without having stumbled across that concept, I probably would have relapsed. That is such a beautiful concept. The idea of relaxing into your recovery and trusting that it worked, trusting that what work you've done is actually going to get you to a place where you can be calm. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, learning how to drive and spending the rest of your life with your learner plates on with your instructor (laughs) sitting next to you. It's like, this is redundant. Just let me out of the car. (laughs) Or you get out of the car. I want to go and take this thing for a test drive, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, yeah, it was something that I had never thought was possible. And as soon as the concept was put in front of me, it just made total sense. I was like, Oh my God, yes, that's how I feel. But I just, my poor healthy self had worked so hard and I was kind of keeping it caged and putting that trust into all that work was um, very liberating. Mm -hmm. So how did you relax into recovery? Did you have to consciously let go of the the thoughts and was there anything that you specifically did once you had that aha moment that allowed you to just relax? It was a lot of sort of like reverse dialoguing where it was like, Mm -hmm. I would start to dialogue and I go, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that. When I was making a food choice, it was like, what do I feel like? That's what I'm having. No analysis. That's just what I'm going to have. And I'm going to have it in the amount that I want it. Uh, all of the, it was sort of like it was all waiting there for me, right? This framework was there waiting for me. And I kind of, as I said, relaxed into it. And it just became more about letting go of kind of what had become paranoia by that point, like just constantly, constantly analyzing and observing myself. Um, I just had to go, nope, we don't do that. Sort of like I did with eating disorder self thoughts when I couldn't dialogue. I used to physically, not physically, I used to literally um, imagine a stop sign coming down and just Mm. be like, I'm not going there. I can't do it. I'm not going down that spiral of thoughts. And it was sort of similar, like, nope, we're not analyzing this. Let's just see what happens. Just go with your instinct, go with what you feel like, go for a walk, Walk, go home when you don't feel like walking anymore and just see what happens. Mm. That is such a cool image as well the stop sign just i'm going to start offering that to my clients because when you have those negative thoughts that visual of the stop sign like really can just get Mm -hmm. you to switch directions and move on with your day yeah because sometimes dialoguing is going to prevent you from doing the thing that you need to be doing in the moment right whether it's it would usually be at a meal time and i would go stop sign and then if that didn't work I'd do something simple like run through the alphabet backwards and forwards backwards Mm -hmm. and forwards because that was easy to do it took enough concentration that it distracted me without getting into the machinations of you know the back and forth between eating disorder self and healthy self which I would do later and unpack that later but if you're if you've just got to get through a meal or you've just got to get through a snack just getting through it initially is absolutely a-okay go back and do some of that dialoguing work afterwards but if you've just got to get through it just get through it that's the priority wow that is super valuable i love i love that information and that those those quick tips i love those tools mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I love some good tools um, <laughs> <laughs> so another question i have for you kind of a lighter one is what is your favorite part about what you do now? Like, what do you love to work with your clients on? I love to work on the healthy self stuff because Mm -hmm. I think that is the most valuable skill that you can teach clients. When you see it click initially with some, it's, I don't get this. This doesn't speak to me. It doesn't make sense to me. And then you find some in with them, whether or not that's, 
uh, getting them to speak to themselves as they would to a loved one. That's a great one. Mm-hmm. For some people, it might be uh, getting them to just initially ask the eating disorder self some questions. You don't have to come back with these definitive healthy self statements like, you know, I'm beautiful and I don't need my eating. You don't believe that. Like you, you don't have to say things you don't believe. If you say something you don't believe back to the eating disorder self, it's like putting out a house fire with a cup of water. You've got to come back with something which is equally believable to your healthy yeah. self. So uh, seeing that click with people and the transition I love, I actually experienced this with a client yesterday where you can tell they're identifying more with their eating disorder self to start because they refer to their healthy self as the other self. And then they do the switch where they are identifying with the healthy self and they refer to the eating disorder self as the other self, right? Mm. So this client said to me yesterday, I said, oh, but do you believe that? And they said, yeah, no, I believe it. My eating disorder self doesn't believe it. I was like, yes, great, great. <laughs> There's the, the eating disorder. That's right. This, that is the secondary part of you. That's the smaller part of you. Great. You know, we're there. Um, I have never come across a more effective or important concept than the eating disorder self and the healthy self because it is so empowering for people to realise as I said earlier in our chat, the agency and the power that they actually have um, and that the, the realisation that the fight or the, the conversation is between them and them. It's not me telling them what to do. It's not me admonishing them or punishing them. It's me and their healthy part of them getting in touch with the unwell part, which is usually the most vulnerable, the most traumatised, the one that, you know, needs the most love and comfort. Let's get in touch with it, find out what it really needs and let's empower your healthy self to step in and take care of that stuff because eating disorder self is doing a terrible job and it's up for a review and it's getting fired because it's not good at meeting all of those needs. Um, so that process is probably my favourite because, yeah, those switches are just, you know, I am just cheering when I can hear that language changing and that, that headspace switching. It's incredible. It really is so fun to teach that concept. And I could spend, I bring it up in every session, whether they're full, like quasi recovery almost there or just starting because it's such a foundational concept. It's helpful to practice all the time. And it's life changing beyond just recovery. I mean, my healthy self now that I'm recovered is obviously not there for food related stuff or body image related stuff. Well, you know, we all have bad body image, but, um, so on the occasional bad body image day, healthy self's really helpful, but it's not there for, you know, eating disorder self related stuff anymore, but for life events, it is for my own, you know, day-to-day anxiety. It is, it's a tool that isn't just something that equips you for the duration of your recovery. It's, it's a skill that you get to retain and use for the rest of your life. Um, And I think that that's a huge benefit of recovery that, you know, I wouldn't wish an eating disorder on anyone, but there are enormous benefits that you can get out of recovery that will go beyond recovery itself. It will make you a much more aware, uh, kind, compassionate person with yourself and with other people. And it will give you the capacity to realize if something's not working for you, you can change it. And the only person who can change it is you. Mm -hmm. There are really so many different, I call them recovery superpowers that you collect, that you can use throughout your, your entire life. And I think when mm-hmm. you go through this process, you emerge out of it kind of a wiser version of yourself, you know, this wise, mindful, compassionate version you didn't even know you had, mm-hmm. uh, which is really exciting and interesting. And I still think... I'll use my healthy self whenever I have anxiety too. Like I'll just, and do you know how empowering it is just to decide to engage in that back and forth? That's Mm -hmm. the cool part for me now is like when I'm in anxiety and I didn't start having really anxiety until after my eating disorder. So for me, it's like, I'm going to step into this powerful place and argue Mm -hmm. back and even if I don't fully believe the arguing it's just it's such a relief to have that tool to lean back on 
yeah, it's having your own advocate in your head and realizing mm-hmm. that, yeah, other people are great for support and help and that's a bonus, but that you are your number one resource. You are mm-hmm. your number one support and then everyone else gets to be back up. Really eye-opening just to hear how you approach talking to people, teaching people about their healthy self and engaging in that conversation because it's such an important piece of information that I want everyone listening to start doing, you know, start engaging mm-hmm. in those conversations. I also wanted to ask you, as far as you as a person and you as a YouTuber and a coach, the whole package, what is your overall mission as far as why you're here? And what messages do you want to share with everyone listening today? I think within sort of my advocacy role, it's a bit different from my coaching role, which is obviously really rewarding in that you're dealing one-on-one with people and having such a, a direct influence over somebody's recovery and and uh, unraveling them from their eating disorder. That's obviously very rewarding. From an advocacy standpoint, it's always been very important for me to look at the much broader spectrum of how eating disorders sit within diet culture, how they sit within, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, body diversity, etc., and being able to highlight problematic messaging out there, whether it's in social media or the media, um, and to help people realise you don't have to have an eating disorder to be miserable on a diet. You don't have to have an eating disorder to be able to work on being more accepting of yourself and and more neutral about your body. I talk a lot about body neutrality, which is sort of a process you go through to start challenging some of those notions you have about how much your appearance contributes to your overall worth um, and neutralizing some of those feelings. But I think that where I see my message going and, and my mission from advocacy going is to, yeah, really broaden that conversation about the fact that disordered eating can be as miserable as an eating disorder. It may not be as chronic, but it can be really detrimental and lifelong because you're not necessarily incentivized to challenge it because you may not see yourself as at risk as somebody with an eating disorder. So helping people realize that they do not have to participate in diet culture, that they do not have to participate in this beauty and body ideal uh, that is constantly shifting, constantly changing, always so unreachable, uh, whether it was, you know, heroin chic back in the 90s and then it was the Glamazon sort of Victoria's Secret models and then we kind of went back to that more recently and now it's, you know, another ideal which is so impossible to reach, which is the tiny waist but these, you know, curves and, and but still on a small frame, all this just interchangeable but uh, unreachable Uh, beauty and and body sizes and standards to realize that you don't have to participate that your energy and your focus is so much better spent on who you are as a person what your values are what your interests are your passions your relationships your experiences traveling the world starting a business getting involved in you know political or social movements connecting to other people Because I think once you've been through an eating disorder and you've gone down that rabbit hole of really believing that what you look like or what you weigh is going to make you happy and you uncover that lie, you want other people to know (laughs) not to waste their time to whatever degree, whether that's having an eating disorder or being a chronic dieter, that there's just so much more out there for them. Um, So, yeah, from the advocacy standpoint, I think that's much more uh, of my broad goal to help people to realize that they have so much potential and there is so much waiting for them if they're brave enough to kind of unpack and look at some of these long-held beliefs that they might be trapped in. I think that really does encompass how valuable recovery is, but also how valuable everybody's higher self is. And Mm -hmm. the fact that there is so much more to life than participating in this diet culture that's ultimately a lie and basically getting all of us to distracting us from our most authentic selves, our most Mm -hmm. joyful selves. So that is such a beautiful mission that you have and the vision. It's very broad, which I love. 
Well, because I, I think it, it was another realisation of mine, which was that how profitable I had been, how profitable I had been to people because of my low self-esteem, because I had internalised that belief that I needed to be smaller, I needed to have a six-pack or, you know, whatever that ideal was that was being marketed at the time, that whether it was a diet program or it was a magazine or it was, you know, a TV show, whatever, that my sense of self was living in somebody's profit margin and that was part of mm. what angered me and it's this just un it's this notion that just goes unquestioned for most of us because it's what we're used to we live in this con consumerism based capitalist society where everything's monetized including your health including your self-esteem including your image um and all of these very subtle and not so subtle messages that we're sent that if you want to belong, if you want to be loved, if you want to be special and successful, there is this very, very uh, small category that you need to fit in in order to achieve those things. And it's just, it's just not necessarily the truth. Um, and you've got to be prepared to challenge that and to fully sit in who you are and take the risk that you will be lovable and likable and successful if you just allow yourself to be truly who you are from a physical standpoint and from an internal standpoint as well it's a scary risk to take but well worth it it is a it is a risk but there's so much reward on the other side totally it feels risky because the message you're sent is it's not possible but once you go through the work you start to realize oh actually i am valued for much more than what i believe that i'm valued for yeah well, I so appreciate you having, having you on the show today. You are full of wisdom and intelligence and knowledge on this. And it's just amazing to have you here. And before I let you go, is there anything you want to share with the audience just about where they can find you or where they can watch your videos? Sure. So the best place to find me is on YouTube. My YouTube channel is called What Mia Did Next. So if you just throw that into the search box, you'll find me. And you can essentially find me under that name everywhere else, like Instagram and Twitter. Uh, so yeah, I also have a podcast called Unfiltered with Mia Finlay, which is back up and running with new episodes. So you can find that on Apple, Spotify, and there's also the video episodes, sort of the recorded version. Um, up on YouTube as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Mia. It was just thank a you. pleasure having you today. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Bye.